0: Welcome to the Antifada
1: where rest is best. I'm Jamie Peck.
2: I am Sean KB. I'm AP Andy.
1: And we are super excited because the gang is back together again. Andy's been gone for six weeks and he has finally returned. They were all in the studio together for the first time in a long time. It's wah, a
0: beautiful wah. thing. Pew, 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 pew. pew
1: we pew. got
2: your letters, we got your DMs, your, your Discord threats, and <laughs> I'm, I decided I
1: had to come back. He had to come back. Uh, we, we actually
0: speculating in caravan futures.
1: We came up with a new name for you uh, just uh, I think last night uh, a new name, uh, Anarcho Mapache Andy.
0: Is it, was that it? I don't think that was it, babe.
1: Anarcho Mapache Andy. That's too long. No, okay. Doesn't roll off the tongue.
0: I don't remember. No, it was about um, it was in reference to trash because yes, um, yes. he was talking to our other friend who is a sanitation <laughs> worker about how great it is to be a sanitation worker. <laughs> And Andy's like getting very interested because, as you may or may not know, Andy loves trash.
1: He loves it.
2: Yeah, I said, I have one question (laughs) being working for sanitation. Can I touch the trash?
1: (laughs) Our friend was like, Yeah, you know, that's a big part of it. But Uh, people don't. No,
0: he said he never touches the trash. and, And he was very concerned about that. He's like, Wait, wait. But could I touch the trash?
1: Yeah. Well, listen, you, the, the trick with that, I think as far as I understand, the like, Department of Sanitation, which is an excellent union job you can get, you have to get something called a tissue. And a tissue is a special cert that gets you out of having to touch trash. But you should just not get any certifications whatsoever. Don't get a tissue. Oh, yeah. And then you can live your dream. I never
2: use tissues. I'm a sleeve guy all the way. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I,
0: Dumpster Andy. What was... We came up with something good, but I'm never going to remember it for a million years as long as I live. Can
1: I, can I just say real fast to the listeners out there, um, you might notice my voice is a little wrecked. Um, that's because Jamie Peck's uh, birthday lasts at least three days, if not a month, and she just turned 30-something yesterday. Oh, my so, God. So happy babe. birthday to I know Jamie. I think
0: it's funny to, like... Make it weird about how I don't want people to know how old I am. But, like, if anything, I do want them to know how old I am because I want them to tell me that I look so good for my age.
1: Good point. Like, if anything, I'll tell
0: them that I'm older because then they'll be like, oh, wow, you look really good for 50. What do you do with your skin?
1: Well, you guys, you know that uh, that New York magazine article that came out about, like, the socialist left the really trolly one or was it the New Yorker mm,
0: doesn't ring a bell
2: I can't believe none of us were in it what are we doing we missed that party <laughs> that they went to the first holoca. either we're too proletarian or just not not partying hard enough <laughs>
0: or we don't know the writer from college because that seems to be her main oh, right, too, right. right. <laughs> none well, of us went to Brown
2: or Barnard or where, where'd that guy go I don't
1: know. Probably not we, um, <laughs> it actually, you know, a lot of people uh, talk shit on that article for good reason. Because it was, it was painting the, you know, the socialist left is like a, this hip social scene that people just like to have parties and get mm-hmm. drunk and get mm-hmm. fucked up. And actually on Friday night, when we had people over for Jamie's birthday, that was actually true. <laughs> it was a, uh, it was all the stars of the uh, Brooklyn uh, podcasting real scene. Where
0: yeah, but like, don't conflate that with the organizing, you know? Don't conflate that with the people doing the organizing, which is what the article did and why it was bad. Bad New York mag article. Like David Cleon, friend of the show, comrade, uh, he came out for my second birthday party last night. We had some karaoke in the basement of Brooklyn Bazaar. Shout out to Matt Callender for making that happen on very short notice. Um, You're the best.
1: Shout out for setting up that karaoke so I could blow my voice out. Oh
0: my God. It was worth it for your rendition of Mother Alone.
1: (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. So
0: anyway, I was talking to David Cleon. And he said, and he'd had a Twitter thread about this too. Like, uh, this, this writer was being very sneaky and not telling people that they were on the record when he spoke with them at the verse the infamous. Verso yeah, of yeah, yeah. And, uh, David did not know that he was being quoted in the article until he got contacted by a fact checker. Now, David, uh, was smart enough to realize at this point in time that it was not going to be a very good story. And it was like, gonna be a little bit uh condescending and trivializing and he remembered what he said to him uh which was you know he pulled out his dsa card and he was like it says like you know socialist organizer on it and he's like oh haha i'm i'm technically a member they sent me this thing in the mail but i have never done any organizing and (laughs) the way that he meant it was like i'm not the person you should be talking to about socialist organizing or like putting in your article but he realized that how he would have used it was like oh I'm just like a trendy brochure list, but I don't <laughs> do anything and that's what the left is like right so good on good on Cleon, good on Cleon for, on for no, re- yeah. recognizing that
1: well he's I mean he's uh, been a journalist and a good one for a long time uh he's also I think maybe the messiest bitch on Twitter one of <laughs> one I mean, of the messiest let's, bitches
0: let's not underestimate Will Medecker there
1: <laughs> fair totally fair um we're back as I said gangs back together gang 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 And uh, today today we're going to be talking a bit about Andy's trip to Mexico and the things that he saw and also some interviews that he managed to get Mm -hmm. from people who are doing actual organizing work, unlike the DSA Mm -hmm. ever does. Mm -hmm. Actual organizing work on the ground uh, in terms of uh, migrants and refugees and all that good stuff.
0: Oh, but before we go any further, I just want to give a shout out to my mom. Um, We're not going to talk for an hour about the whole Ilhan Omar Uh, apac controversy oh come on nobody's talked about that on (laughs) podcast this week i think it's been uh pretty well covered by (laughs) all due respect ilhan we are sick and tired of hearing about your views on israel (laughs) (laughs) oh my god everyone's got one but um i just want to give a little shout out to my mom here yeah shout out to your mom i feel very lucky in that my old cranky jewish parents are in fact quite liberal and also not zionists and they, they take the right stance on a lot of things. They're also Bernie supporters. So yeah. shout out to them for that. That's um, good, for,
1: uh, good for boomers.
0: Yeah. Oh, Not cer- a lot of boomers. Oh, are, uh, certainly. Yeah. So for, for anyone, really. Yeah, sure. But especially for boomers. Yeah. So she actually wrote a letter to the editor of the New York Times, which she reads all the time. and Like a good lib. Yes, indeed. And I just want to read it. I want to read it. Read so it. So she says. Let your
1: mom speak her truth.
0: She says, quote. I am deeply shaken by the fault lines that have been exposed by the recent controversy around the influence wielded by the American Israel Public Affairs Committee, or APAC. It is not anti Semitic to hold Israel to the same standards as we do other nations. Many Jewish people, myself included, disagree with the current policies of the Israeli government, particularly with regard to the human rights of the Palestinian people, the occupied ter- territories, and the settlements. The influence of big money in Congress is ruining our democracy. And then she goes on.
1: Yeah, go ahead.
0: Identity politics perpetuate stereotypes and prejudice and ultimately dehumanize us. We need to take a breath and have honest, good faith discussions without throwing around accusations of anti Semitism when we disagree. Signed, my mom. I will not dox her full <laughs> name and
1: location. Well don't don't forget the PS the at the end she says, um no nations, no borders, uh, fuck law and order, uh, hashtag ACAB.
0: Yeah, I think they cut that part out. Yeah, those fucking mods, I
1: They're tell you.
2: There's just a line of Arabic at the end that I can read, <laughs> but didn't look good. <laughs>
0: Not good. <laughs> yeah, shout out to my mom. Um, I hope that you don't make, I, I hope people in your life uh, don't give you a hard time about this because it was, uh, it was a good, it was a great statement and I'm proud of you.
1: Hell yeah. Thanks, mom. She's my mom too now.
0: Mm-hmm. I that's have how it works. two
1: moms, double moms. Um, that was a weird thing to say. Uh, <laughs> moving on. Uh,
0: my birthday has broken you. It really, it, do- has. it really, it, it really does has. every time. Like oh, I'm no. the only one still standing at the end of my birthday. I was, Even I am like barely.
2: I was pretty messed up from your first birthday party on <laughs> yeah. Friday. Could you imagine doing that again? I, I couldn't do it on a Saturday night.
0: <laughs> that's, that's, that's totally f- fair. It's fair. It's I have fair. two, so you know if you can't make one of them, you can go to the other one. But um, I think shout out to Jake Flores yeah. because he, he went to both is yeah. <laughs> one of the only people who managed to go to both.
1: Yeah. Oh, my God. He, went he to might a... have been the
0: only one. I hey. think he might
1: have been the only one. Yeah.
0: I mean, besides us.
1: Because Nero didn't make it. Um, yeah, no.
0: He had a bachelor party. Boo. Oh,
1: you know who did make it to both of them? The man whose name shall not be spoken.
0: Ha <laughs> ha. Oh, my God. that's a, That's a horse of a different color. Yeah, oh, we're on, even touch on, on Friday that? we, we had to a party with all of our leftist friends and Armin.
1: <laughs> you said his and name, okay? I got yep, um, Armin. Yep.
0: I got uh, a, a message from Katie Halper the next day, <laughs> like, "Oh, who was uh, your South Asian friend that I was talking to for a really long time? I want his Twitter handle." All uh, his friend though had the weirdest politics, and I was like, "Oh, indeed, <laughs> story checks out." That it, that would be <laughs> that would be Niro and Armin, but. Uh, Shout out to both of them. They are my very dear friends. And, uh, and this is something
2: that. Uh, we'll go into, I'm sure, on a future episode. Okay, but, uh, okay. Fuck, Armin, fair enough. Armin wasn't wrong about everything. <laughs> but, yeah. Just uh, leave it at her now.
1: What did Katie Halper say, though, when you told her it was Armin Rosen? She
0: went, OMG.
1: <laughs> she knows. She I knows. Was like, No,
0: I know. He's, he's, uh, he's family to me. So well, we all have Zionists in our family well except for me apparently because my mom is you know I just read the letter but uh, well your ahead.
2: mom said that there should be good faith discussions without accusations of anti-Semitism and that's what happens until Katie Happer realized I mean it's what your mom
1: did was basically anti-Semitic to say that we, we yeah. can not have good faith arguments you know about Israel and Palestine yeah, well, that's basically anti-Semitic probably
0: the most Jewish thing you could be to be a self-hating Jew so <laughs> yeah. that tracks with reality she's in good company yeah so uh before we shit talk any more of our friends
1: <laughs> or relatives.
0: <laughs> friends or relatives. Um, we will And th- by the way, that was irony, in case folks didn't catch it. I love my mom very much. I do not think she's an anti Semite. Um and we love Israel very much as well. Love <laughs> it. Love it. Okay, so um back to Mexico. Um Andy and I actually both just got back from Mexico, but his trip was much more long and substantive than mine. So I Yes, will-
2: I was uh I was volunteering with a, a caravan solidarity group. What were you doing, Jamie?
0: <laughs> what what I mean, okay. To be fair, I did blackout around the time that Death Grips started playing <laughs> and woke up a couple days later with the new tattoo. So I really I couldn't call it beyond that.
2: Death Grips is a very political band. Yeah, yeah shout out and to And I'm just kidding, I was also Death Grips started you know, show? I was also on the beach for like ten days before I went to Fiana. if yeah. you
0: get a chance to see Death Grips folks, do it. Like we were all just in a state of wonder and amazement after we saw them play in Mexico City.
1: When you had this, this grand experience, you were completely sober, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. No LSD. Uh, LSD no. would
0: just be gilding the lily, okay? <laughs> like, I mean, maybe I was, but that's totally beside the point. Like, Death Grips... They're still good. ...is God. Uh, I'm very glad I'm not a drummer after having that experience. It definitely... Triggered a minor existential crisis in boy Jamie because you know he he thought he was pretty good, and then he saw Zach Hill, who is about forty years old, sprint a two-minute mile for an hour, (laughs) which is how he described it. Like, what the fuck? Also, MC Ride is like one of the weirdest people I've ever witnessed on a stage performing, and the the combination was just Mm, ma, very very uh, very anarchist, very very wonderful, very transcendent.
1: Maybe we have our outro song, Guillotine.
0: (laughs) They definitely have the mindset. Do they play Guillotine? Of course they play Guillotine. Their lyrics don't really make enough sense to extract um, like a political, a coherent ideology from it. But they have often been claimed as an anarchist band, and I think that's probably true.
1: That song that they were talking about—the periodization of uh, the movement from uh, real to formal. Uh, Formal to real subsumption on that value form album they did. Formal to real subsumption on the value form album. (laughs) I think that was one of uh, Death Grips' greatest works. And you might think that value form theory is incoherent, but I appreciate what they're doing.
0: Yeah, fair enough. Well, we'll get them on sometime.
1: I hope so. That'd be lit, actually.
0: Oh my god, it'd be so good.
1: All right, so Jamie had a frivolous and fun uh, Death Grips trip. Oh yeah. Oh,
0: but the one thing that was serious is I met DACA recipient actually when I was in Mexico City, a friend of a friend who lived his whole life in California. He was like, real Cali bro, man. You know, Uh, his Spanish was not that much better than mine, just to say, pretty basic. And he had to self-deport because he got a DUI, as young people sometimes do. You know, you make a mistake. And all of a sudden, they revoked his status. And he had to, like, it's better for you if you leave on your own than if ICE, like, rounds you up and deports you. So he did. And now he lives in Mexico city and he was taking it pretty remarkably well. It's certainly better than I would,
1: but I like mean, Mexico city is a great city. We all, we all love it, but, but like, uh, it's fuck? not his home. So no, like, he doesn't
0: remember Mexico. Up. Yeah. Like fuck man. What
1: happens to people? Like, like he has to um, he has apply. To apply for, yeah. Oh wow.
0: It's, it's crazy. And there are good
1: chances that he'll get back to the States. We
0: I mean, who the fuck knows yeah. at this point, but his whole life is in California.
1: The it whole was, thing is crazy. The
0: whole thing is it's fucked up. It's crazy. Um, that is really one of the areas where Trump is substantially worse than like a Democrat would be, I would
1: say. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Especially so, rhetorically. It's like kind of scary times. Like, again, we're not going to talk Ilhan Omar, but like just the level of um, vitriol uh, coming from the top and then saturating the media. Um, is pretty scary. Yeah, and they're talking and like this
0: is a kid who got a DUI, and they're talking about these people like they're rapists and
1: murderers. Yeah, it's an invasion, right? Like our camp of saints. uh yeah. History as a weapon, number three, coming yeah. out soon. And
2: um, that's part of the reason I went to Tijuana is is because uh, in the lead up to the election, there was all this fear mongering about a, a caravan of mostly people from uh, Honduras, but also Guatemala and El Salvador. And uh, there had been caravans before. There have been caravans since, but this particular one was uh, just played up a lot in the media as an election issue. Um, there was a, a few thousand of them at, at its peak, and uh, most of them uh, young people, young men, women with children, with young children, pregnant women, uh, and you know, J- Trump just and the conservatives just lied and said that. It was filled with gang members. It was filled with ISIS terrorists. That they had diseases. Uh, yeah. Just literal, All literal camp of the saints shit. Yeah. Uh, and also saying that it was funded by George Soros <laughs> or tropes, some tropes. Yeah. shadowy globalist forces. <laughs> camp uh, of the
0: Saints, by the way, is an extremely racist book by Gene Respy that Sean will be addressing on an upcoming History as a Weapon. If and by addressing
1: it, you mean two hours of talking with Matt Crispin, yeah, yeah, uh, and, we addressed it,
0: and it. Um, I think it's really important to under it's like a window into understanding where a lot of these alt-right and right-wing people are coming from when um, I don't know Laura Ingram gets up and she's like oh, they should stay in the safety of their home countries. (laughs) The implication being that they're just like lying about it so they can come in and like invade America. Like, do you know what
1: asylum means? It means you can't be safe in your own country and you have to
2: leave. we'll be hearing some interviews from some of the people in the caravan and our friend Angela is here to to help uh, do some voiceover translation. If you want to say hello, Angela.
0: All right, hello. Um, All right, so you want to tell us a little more about your uh, trip to Tijuana?
1: Or you want to let the interviews tell them?
2: No, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll do some background. So, uh, you know, aside, so we're all very familiar with the, the Trump uh, scaremongering before the election. But there is also kind of this response to that from the left that uh, was really unhelpful, which was downplaying the danger of uh, just just treating it like it was just an election issue. And it wasn't like Trump wasn't serious about sending uh, soldiers to the border. Uh, really, um. He he was very serious about keeping these people out of the country, keeping them from uh, doing what legally by U.S. law uh, they should be able to do, which is to go to a port of entry, preferably a legal port of entry uh, and ask for asylum and go through the process of asylum. And that's um, U.S.
1: and international law, right? Like, yep. Yeah.
2: Um, so a lot of the people from this caravan, uh, the, the one in uh, October, November, uh, ended up in Tijuana They they uh, you know, uh, the majority of them were from Honduras, so they crossed into Guatemala and then they uh, they they from Guatemala, they kind of uh, forced their way into Chiapas and the Mexican border um, and they continued to make their way up uh, despite intense harassment from the Mexican state uh, and from uh, reactionary Mexicans uh, all throughout the path. They made it on buses. Not all of them made it. Some of them disappeared. Some of them died. Some of them had to go back were arrested. Um, but uh thousands of them made it in November to Tijuana. And um I think a lot of us remember the footage in early December of something that was like a riot at the at the uh the the road leading up to the border. Um uh and, and since that point the Mexican state decided that uh the the caravan which um was it, the caravan in many ways is a very political act. Uh it 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 was both an attempt to uh, to support one another and to, to get to the United States. But also it was a way of showing that things are so bad in Central America mm. that everybody needs to get together and just leave their homes and walk, like literally walk for thousands of miles. Wow. Uh, and so Mexico, the Mexican authorities uh, working with the United States decided that the best way to deal with this is to stop that solidarity, that political uh, togetherness and dispersed them. So first they dispersed the kind of camps. Uh, at, at first, a lot of them were sleeping on the, the street uh, in camps. Then some of them occupied a, uh, a I think it's like a, a former winery or something like that. They call it a bodega. Cool. Uh, near the, the beach in Tijuana, the police surrounded that and kicked uh, them out. Not cool. Um, and most of, most of them uh, from the occupation left, but a, a crew of them stayed and kind of resisted the occupation. And eventually they were forced out because they weren't letting... The police weren't letting supplies in, and that group of people went on to, uh, w- working with some uh, mostly U.S. activists, uh, open a Commodore, a, uh, like a, a restaurant um, in the north part of Tijuana where they uh, volunteer to make two meals a day um, for anyone. Primarily, they serve uh, other people from the caravan. Um, and so I went there to primarily to help out with this project, but I also helped out at Inclave Caracol, which is an anarchist space right near the border. Uh, I met people from uh, El Otrolato, uh, uh Translation is The Other Side, which is a legal support group uh, that um, kind of gives people the rundown on what it's going to be like to ask for asylum. So I've got an interview with one of the directors of El Otrolato. Uh So I'm going to play some of the interviews that I recorded there. Um, I interviewed uh, three of the, the people who keep the Commodore that I mentioned running, um, and then I, uh, I interviewed one of the directors of El, El Trilado, and I interviewed uh, a guy from the caravan named Jeff, who uh, was part of an anarchist group and uh, faced some pretty brutal uh, persecution in his country, uh, and that's why he joined the caravan, um, and he's part of the punk scene too, so we're going to hear a bit about the punk scene there, and our friend Angela is here to translate all of it. And then we'll be back afterwards to, uh, to talk a little bit about the interviews. Okay, so I'm here at the Commodore in Tijuana. Uh, it's a place where there's two meals every day. There's a lunch and there's a dinner. And it's run by a small group of people who met on the caravan, and they met here in Tijuana, uh, and they decided to make a, a kitchen to make to, for free meals for uh, just anybody who's in the neighborhood, but mostly fellow Central American migrants and refugees. Uh, so I'm here with one of the cooks, someone who's always behind the counter, always has a smile on her face, always making food and helping people out. Um, and I'm going to get a little bit about her story and uh, why she's active here. Uh, Dime tu nombre y y que haces en en el comedor. Sí,
3: uh, mi nombre es Gaby. Y pues estoy acá en el comedor contra viento y marea. Uh, Me ocupo uh, mi tiempo haciendo comida, mucha comida junto a cinco personas más.
2: Y ¿de dónde eres?
3: Uh, soy de Salvador.
2: Uh-huh. ¿Y cómo llegaste aquí? Uh,
3: pues mm, por medio de la caravana. Well, I came here through the caravan. I was in my country in El Salvador,
4: and I heard about the caravan, and I saw an opportunity to make it to the United States. And, well, when we arrived here. We were sleeping on the streets while uh, people supported us with camping, tents, and very warm clothes. And we were there about 15 nights or more sleeping in the street. And then they found us a cellar, a bodega, and it was better there. We didn't get wet when... It rained, and enero it was, que nos sacaron la bodega.
3: Ya, no la, ya no la había vuelto a ver hasta so ese then día y nos me practicó
4: bodega and yeah they wanted to kick immigrants. us out so pues there was there was a lot of resistance for seven days we didn't leave Ellos the bodega we didn't shower en um, but then what happened y was y pues we we ended up y having y to y leave and okay. you know each person went their own way some people they jumped the the fence and then Found jobs, and other of us were were here helping.
2: Okay.
3: Yeah. Creo uh, and so yeah, since December I se hadn't seen the bodega, but
4: then oui, we had y a y reunion y and uh, people talked about opening up a comedor and they asked if I could help because at the bodega I was cooking all the time, yeah, there was 400 of us and
3: so yeah, that's where they knew me from from the bodega and they asked
4: me do you want to help and so I said, yes, because I knew, you know, how many people and how much, how much food I would have to make. And, you know, at first, at,
3: there was only 10 people
4: maybe eating, maybe 20, and now there's 40, 60 every time we make food.
2: ¿Y qué es tu esperanza para el futuro de, del combidor y el futuro de Caravana y, y tu vida en, en general?
3: Well, being a migrant myself, there's this link, we had all been walking and traveling
4: for a month, lots of us living together, and well, I've lived this, what it's like to not have food, and, well, this gave me an opportunity to do what I like, I like to cook, and I like to help people. Well, I.
2: donde va a ser este restaurante?
4: I want to make a restaurant. Um, I like to cook; that's my thing. Uh, um, well, I had planned I a future like this for myself. I had planned to go to the United States and, and work for five years and save up. And then, after saving up, I would want to put a restaurant in my country. In my
3: country.
2: Uh, I'm here with uh, Ernesto, one of the the people who run the Comedor. Um, Ernesto, ¿de dónde eres?
5: De
2: Honduras. De Honduras, San Pedro
5: Sula. I'm from
4: Honduras, from San Pedro. Um, I came here on the 21st of November 2018, and I came here like many others in a truck. I came in the container, and well, it was cold and tiring because when we frío, passed through the
5: Aguador, Rumorosa. Los Rosa, mm-hmm. gran um,
4: it was fun, but it was also very dangerous because there were very um, steep uphills, making our way over to Tijuana. Ah,
5: me vine en la I uh, came because of, of the problems sí, with my country pobreza, the poverty si and
4: also because of políticas. political problems because in Honduras sí, there was a president Honduras, who basically got put in power illegally um, so since 2009,
5: 2009 we've been y having y a y lot, de lot of
2: problems las manifestaciones
5: Yes, I went to the protests. I went to the protests in 2017.
4: I went, protests in 2000. I went to the protests against the president, and I actually got put in jail for two days.
5: Yeah, um, I saw a lot of people who were. Very, very beat también. up and in fact, we
4: even saw some people who were, the police, the police were taking, who were n- unconscious and uh, we haven't heard what happened to those people since.
5: Al Amo, esto de with the
4: comedor, we all knew each a other a from the bodega, Yami me y and y Gabby and the others. So we had the idea of creating a Comedor because there were lots of people, migrants, who just weren't eating well or were eating only once a day. So we had this idea. We got the place, and, well, they needed volunteers, and I volunteered. And, well, this was a good idea because we knew if other people would come from other caravans, they would have a place to eat here
5: una vez bien entonces se dio la idea digamos se compró el lugar se vio todo y como necesitaban personas que ayudaran para
2: voluntariado, entonces y probablemente va a ser más caravanas, no
5: si sí, lo más probable porque así como están en esta honduras porque
4: Uh, Yes, there will be other caravans and, you know, maybe even from Haiti because they're having a lot of problems there as well. Here, any migrant can get food. And, well, let's say even if a Mexican wants to come here and get food, they can get food too. Well, for the caravan, I wanted to continue because this is a place to eat and for migrants and people who they might not have enough money to eat. But it's also a place for us to communicate with each other, the migrants. Well, the caravans, they happen because because of all the problems in the country and they help because we have protection from the authorities. The caravan helps because, well, for one, you don't have to spend money on the trip, but also you get protection from the authorities all the way until you get there. But the real problem is when you get to the border and try to ask for asylum, because there are very strict rules for the asylum. Um, Most people get deported, and some people go other places, and a very small minority do get asylum. Yeah, and other people, they try to jump the fence but it's very complicated, this this thing of being in the border, of because so many migrants in one town, there needs to be support or help from the Mexican government and from the US government. Well, for me, right now, I'm here in El Comedor until I Past the border. Um, I don't know when because I have to figure some things out. Uh, I don't know where I'm going to stay. Yeah, I don't know where I'm going to sleep when I get there, or where I'm going to cross. No sé cuándo
5: porque tengo que ver, cómo como cruzo, a dónde me voy a quedar. Sí, esas dos cosas tengo que ver: dónde cruzo y dónde me voy a quedar durmiendo. Sí, sí, y a y esperar a ver a poder cruzar.
2: Hay algo más que que decir.
5: Uh, sí, que las personas no salieran de su país Entonces, yeah. Sí, yeah, that people
4: wouldn't leave their countries cosas, if it weren't for those, those political and bad government And, yeah, the United States, the problem is that they get involved in other, pe- in other countries' politics. They might support sometimes, but they also back dictatorships. And in Honduras, there's this military base, the Palmero military base. It's the biggest one in Central America. Um, and it's strategic because of the Caribbean, and that's why the United States wants Honduras.
5: Because if there's a right-wing party
4: in power in Honduras, then the United States is going to have Honduras, well, in the palm of their hands.
5: I'm Jose
6: Israel Cáceres I'm Honduras. Yo soy de Olancho, el departamento de Olancho, de Honduras, ahí nací.
2: Y cuando llegaste aquí, cómo llegaste aquí?
6: Pues en la caravana los venimos, sí, en raí. I am José and
4: we'll I am from Honduras, Honduras, from Olancho. Mm. Well, I came here in the caravan and with rides, and it was a really hard path. As part of it we were walking. Sometimes uh, in trucks, and yeah, other times hitchhiking.:
2: Okay, if we stay in La Carabana.
6: Well, I came with the caravan because the mira,
4: it was our only option. If we would not have come with the caravan, we would have been detained or returned. With this, it's more open, and with this, we came protected with the police, the federal police, the municipal p- police, um, and also human rights groups. We came uh, more protected as people say. First when we arrived they they, we, they received the us with food and then when we got to La Playa uh, they received us with rocks. Um, they threw rocks at us. Yeah, In La Playa there was a whole fight that happened. They hit a, a Mexican person threw a rock, and uh, twenty people were throwing rocks. It, it became a whole fight, and some people defended themselves. And then after two days, uh, there they took us to Benito Juárez, and there we didn't, we weren't well because we had fever from all the walking that we had done. We had, we were coughing. So, we asked some friends in the United States for some help, and they did send us some money, so we stayed at a hotel for some time, a Hotel Antonieta. And we spent some time like that, some days at Antonieta, some days in a shelter, other days at the bodega.
6: Uh, Then at the bodega,
4: we actually were trapped there for a few days.
6: Todavía ir a Unidos? Well, yes, I would like to go to, to the United States, States and I was just
4: talking to a friend
6: who knows a group that I helps people, people get out because
4: really I don't know anyone in the United States. I don't
6: have family there. I'm alone. solo. No tengo familia. No tengo nada.
2: Vas a pedir asilo?
6: Si, es lo que quiero pedir asilo por los problemas que tenemos en el país. Yes, that is what I want. I want to
4: ask for asylum. Yeah, there's a lot of problems in my country because the Mara and the police, they're united. They're very corrupt. And even in school, they make the kids sell drugs. And my son, I took him out of school because he was going to go to high school next year, but I took him out. And yes, my family, we don't have a lot of money, so... We want to ask for asylum, and maybe that will help.
2: All right, I'm here in the offices of El Otrolado and the uh, Enclavé Caracol space, which is right near border. And uh, this morning I went to Chaparral, which is a, a plaza leading to where people uh, are, are waiting to hear their asylum cases. I'm here with one of the directors of El Otrolado, Can you tell me your name and what you do with the project?
7: My name is Nicole Ramos, and I am one of Alotolado's three female co-directors, and I direct our border rights project here in Tijuana, Mexico. We provide Know Your Rights training and legal orientation to asylum seekers who are waiting in Tijuana to present themselves to U.S. authorities at the San Isidro Port of Entry. I've been here in Tijuana since September of 2014. I've been accompanying and doing Know Your Rights training with refugees since December of 2015, and I have been with Al since December of 2016.
2: So many of our listeners are probably uh, aware of what's going on here as a result of uh, the caravan that arrived last fall, Um, but you've been here for much longer. how has the situation here changed over the last few years?
7: We have seen uh, more asylum seekers being turned away from the port of entry. Previously, there was not a wait list. And asylum seekers could theoretically present themselves to U.S. immigration authorities at the port of entry in order to begin their asylum process. However, uh, after the election of President Trump, we saw a significant increase in asylum seekers being turned away and shut out of the process completely. And we also saw an increase in the use of this wait list uh, which currently keeps asylum seekers trapped in Tijuana for sometimes upwards of two to three months. And we have now the crisis point where we have thousands of asylum seekers waiting to access the port of entry and living in conditions that are not suitable for trauma, in trauma individuals who have suffered trauma, and particularly families with children.
2: Um, so, when did the wait list process begin?
7: The first iteration of the waitlist began in May, early June of 2016, where we saw the Haitian exodus arrive to Tijuana. and Initially that system was uh, an agreement between the U.S. and Mexico government to manage the flow of Haitian migration and to limit the number of people that were being processed per day. Uh, However, it quickly became uh, applied to other nationalities, including Mexican asylum seekers. Uh, Al otro lado filed a class action lawsuit against the Department uh, Department of Homeland Security in July of 2017 regarding uh, turnaways of asylum seekers at the port of entry and this wait list. Uh, After that lawsuit, we saw uh, the wait list disappear, Um, but then we saw it reemerge under a new iteration Uh, at the end of December 2017, early uh, 2018. And with that wait list, it's now not managed directly by the Mexican government, by Mexican immigration as it previously had. Um, They elect a committee of asylum seekers to manage the list. But however, even though on its face, it looks like asylum seekers are managing the list, that is not accurate. The Mexican uh, Immigration Agency still takes physical control over the list and controls how the list is managed um, and just puts asylum seekers out front um, in order to create an extra layer to insulate themselves from liability and insulate the Department of Homeland Security from liability.
2: Yeah, so I saw this morning, uh, you know, uh, uh, groups of of dozens of people waiting outside this tent at Chaparral and then uh, a man in orange uh, from Mexican immigration came over um, with a list or a a number uh, that the asylum seeker management team, the the people who have the list, call out. uh, And they have no control over how many numbers they call out, so people have been waiting weeks and weeks, um, thinking that maybe 20 people will be called that day, or 100 people will be called that day. And that sort of separates them from their right to go to the port and
7: ask for asylum. Yes, there is no provision in the law or the regulations implementing the law that allows for the U.S. government to delegate processing to a foreign government who will then subdelegate that to a group of asylum seekers. Uh, CBP, which is U.S. Customs and Border Protection, they let Mexican immigration know every day how many asylum seekers that they're going to accept that day, and that number is never uniform, which forces asylum seekers to have to go down to the port of entry uh, daily um, or several times a week to see if their number is going to be called. Not all of them live in shelters uh, that are near to the port of entry. If you miss the day that your number is called, then you have to put your name back on the list and then wait another four to eight weeks to be called again. And so what you're doing is is you're forcing asylum seekers to wait in what is a dangerous border city, it's the fifth most dangerous city in the world at this time, um, while they are actively fleeing uh, organized crime and government agents that have pursued them throughout Mexico and you're shutting the door literally in their faces where there's nothing in the law that allows for this uh, delegation of processing to the Mexican government. Added to to that is you're forcing people who are really desperate to maybe enter the country through irregular means, um, through the use of uh, smugglers, or they may um, also be subject to trafficking if they don't use a smuggler, even if they do, um, trying to cross outside the port of entry because they simply can't afford to wait anymore. They are being pursued or they don't have money um, for housing or for basic necessities such as food.
2: Well, one thing that I saw today that i I wasn't really aware of until I came here is that we're not just talking about people from from Mexico or from Central America, but I met t- today a man from Cameroon who has walked here more or less from Ecuador uh, so it's people from all over the world who are waiting to ask asylum and that's another important thing about this list is it's not people waiting to get asylum they're waiting to ask to go to the United States side of the border to ask for asylum to apply for it once they are given the right to that interview, then another pretty traumatic sounding process begins. Could you describe a little bit about what people find when they get to the other side?
7: Yes, but I also just wanna touch about what you noted that with a Cameroonian asylum seeker, Tijuana is a representative of the refugee crisis that we see worldwide we are seeing on any given day asylum seekers from up to 10 different countries on any given day we're providing services in three to four different languages um asylum seekers that speak russian farsi indigenous languages from central america french uh other other languages um that are that are more dialectical from countries in africa and we're attempting to provide service to this wide cross-section of people who have as you noted, literally walked across three continents in order to arrive here and then are being forced to wait in abject um, and dangerous conditions. Once a person enters the port of entry and is accepted for processing, they will spend anywhere from three to days to two weeks in a place called the yeleras which in English that translates into icebox. And so they're kept in these holding facilities that are kept at very low temperatures. They say to um, stave off disease and infection, but really it is to make people feel uncomfortable uh, and so that they would sign for their own removal. The lights are kept on 24 hours a day. People are literally kept in areas that approximate cages. Men are separated from their families. Uh, Sometimes children are separated from their parents. That still continues to happen, even though the policy was to be discontinued. In fact, in the last um, few weeks, we've identified six families that have been separated where their children have been removed and parents have been placed in adult detention. Uh, If the family or the individual is not released from the port of entry on humanitarian parole and given a notice to appear in court and to check in with an ICE officer in a couple of weeks, then that person or family is going to go to a detention center. If it is a family, they will go to a family detention center in either Texas or Pennsylvania and they will can stay there up to three weeks, but the law is very clear that families with children cannot be detained for longer than 20 days. Uh, And if they pass their credit for your interview with an asylum officer, which is just the first step in the process, um, they could be eligible to be released on parole. Adults, uh, whether they're adults who are coming without children or adults who have been separated from their families or adults who have children but are not um, traveling with them or their children are, are adults themselves, they will almost all go to adult detention centers. And different family members could be sent to detention centers thousands of miles apart and they will have no way to communicate even though they are attached to the same case and the same set of facts that brought them here. And there is no pro bono representation that's universal across the board. So they are in what are prisons for immigrants they have to defend themselves in proceedings, which are in English, and although there are translators available for their proceedings, there's no one available to help them complete an asylum application, which is a 12-page form that's in English. There's no one available to help them translate any documents uh, that they may have brought from them home country into English, and all documents and evidence must be submitted in English to the court with a, cert- a certificate of translation. And they are having to defend themselves in their asylum cases, which is a very complex area of law, even for immigration attorneys and asylum attorneys that practice regularly against a U.S. government attorney with all the resources of the federal government in front of a U.S. immigration judge by themselves, and not all of them have um, higher education. Not all asylum seekers are even able to read in their own native language, and so the cards are really stacked against them, and a lot of people are ultimately deported because they're not given a fair chance and the tools that they need in order to present their asylum claim.
2: And so obviously a lot of people coming here are um, showing up not really prepared for what is a process that you... Can't probably really prepare for, um, and El lado seems to offer offer a lot of services to to try to get people ready. Um, what are some of the things that you uh, you do for people who are uh, attempting to uh, cross over and uh, ask for asylum?
7: Our day starts in the morning outside of the port of entry at at the Plaza Chabarral, and we have a volunteer team that. Meets with asylum seekers who are waiting to put their number on the uh, get their number on the waitlist, and asylum seekers who are just getting ready to enter custody, and uh, we're letting asylum seekers know. Um, for those who are not entering that day that we have um, a daily program a legal orientation know your rights program and inviting them back to that program which will begin at 1 and giving them maps and explaining to them a, a bit about the process and why it would be helpful for them to have more information so that they can prepare for the legal process prepare for detention and um, hear perhaps maybe about what other options would be available to them in Mexico if they decide they don't want to go forward uh, for those people who are just about to enter detention that day, we're trying to make sure that they understand the the conditions that they're going to be entering, particularly how cold it will be, and helping them uh, get into warm clothing for those that were not aware so that they can be prepared. Uh, we have lots of volunteers who bring warm clothing and, and socks and trying to, to, to gear people up for that and also explaining to them that they're... Uh, belongings are going to be taken from them and placed into a locker and helping them write down with permanent marker either on their arm or on a piece of paper, whatever they choose, the important phone numbers for people in the states and home country that they may need to contact in detention and they won't have access to their cell phones. Um, And just preparing them as well for the possibility that they now under the new policy, which is return to Mexico, also known as the Migrant protection protocols that they may even after going into the port of entry still be returned to Mexico to wait out their legal process uh, and that if that happens they should definitely come back to our office to connect with us because it's an issue that we're currently with um, three other nonprofit organizations litigating in federal court.
2: Yeah, it seems like uh, since the the new government in Mexico came in, there was a a deal struck with the Trump administration to try to keep as many asylum seekers and migrants in Mexico as possible so that it's not the same sort of uh, number of people on parole in the United States. Is that that more or less accurate?
7: Well, it goes back to even before the current Mexican um, administration. The U.S. government has been giving Mexico... A substantial amount of money in the billions under Plan Frontera Sur for years um, to police Mexico's southern border and to prevent migrants from making it to the northern border. Um, So Mexico has been highly incentivized for years to prevent asylum seekers from getting to the border. Um, What we're seeing now under the new administration is a lot um, of Central Americans being granted humanitarian visas, which are temporary. They allow the individual or the family to stay in the country for up to one year. Uh, Previously, humanitarian visas and other iterations did not come with the right to work. However, in this recent wave, um, they have been given the right to work. And so they are documented and they have the right to work. And so the thinking is, if they get sent back, it won't it won't be so bad for them. Um, but it ignores the fact that uh, Central Americans are discriminated against in Mexico. Uh, there are not many job opportunities available to them that are not exploitative. Um, they are targeted by organized crime because they know maybe some of them have family in the states that are waiting for them that would be willing to pay an extortion demand or simply that they matter so little in society, um, to Mexican society, that if they're disappeared, no one will be looking for them, and so that's what we're seeing is this proliferation of humanitarian visas, um, and as well a and trying to prevent unaccompanied minors from accessing the port of entry to present themselves for asylum. They are not coming with humanitarian visas, and. Uh, several minors that have tried to present themselves have been intercepted. And it's taken a lot of advocacy by advocates here on the ground um, in Mexican civil society in order to get them released and get them access to the legal process without interference.
2: Sorry, what what do you mean by intercepted?
7: Um, By that, I mean Mexican immigration agents have... uh, Take in custody of the children as they're trying to present themselves to U.S. authorities and then place them in Child Protective Services custody here, even though the child's attention is to seek asylum in the U.S. Maybe they have a family member there that's also in asylum proceedings. Um, their intention is not to remain in Mexico. And... Largely, the Mexican child services system is not able to offer them anything, especially nothing after their 18th birthday. And so it's very imperative that these children are given access to the port of entry to be able to make their claims. Sort
2: of to summarize what we've talked about. I've, I've seen firsthand that LL Trelato is helping people out uh, on a day-to-day basis, people showing up, um, feeding them, telling them about what to expect, giving them advice on what, what it's going to be like to be detained. And um, uh, it also sounds like you are trying to make the process in general more fair and humane and for the U.S. and Mexico to simply follow asylum laws in the courts. Um, so how can listeners help out either on this day-to-day, on-the-ground stuff, or uh, help out your organization in general?
7: Well, the the big piece of our organization is not only direct service. As you mentioned, we do provide on-the-ground services daily. But what we learn from our direct service helps inform our class action litigation, where we're suing the government um, to disrupt what is a system of injustice. I would like to one day not have a job and not have to keep suing the government, but until that time, we're gonna keep providing direct service and keep suing the government to hold them accountable to following the law as it has been laid out in the books for years. Uh, We are always in need of on-the-ground volunteers. Um, We have a lot of different ways that people can plug in. Uh, People also um, are needed to help sponsor asylum seekers. Um, that are coming out of detention uh, who maybe don't have someone in the U.S. to receive them um, so that they can have a soft place to land. We have a bond fund that we need help um, raising money for people who are detained, who are given the decision that it's okay, um, they're given parole, they can leave, they still have to continue with their proceedings, but they may still have to pay a $5,000 bond that they just don't have the money to, to to pay. And so we have a bond fund where we will pay their bonds, but we need to raise donations for that bond fund. Um, and. Currently, our Mexico work is not funded. Um, We have work that we do in Central America that is funded. We have work that we do in the United States, which is a large brunt of our work that is funded, but our Mexico work is not funded. Um, And so we are between 40 and 80 volunteers every single day, and we're doing fundraising to have some more permanent staff, um, attorneys, volunteer coordinators brought on. And so that would be helpful. So to sum that up, it would be, you know, people to receive asylum seekers coming out of detention, people to help with raising funds so that we can get asylum seekers released from detention so who can't afford to pay a bond, Um, people to come to Tijuana to help with their on-the-ground daily activities, which includes legal services, general hospitality and medical services, as well as people to help with with fundraising so that we can have permanent staff down here and, and make this as smooth of a process as possible.
2: And all that information can be found at your site?
7: We can, you can look at our website, www.alotrolado.org. We are also, um, you can follow us on Twitter and on Facebook and Instagram.
2: All right, Nicole, thanks so much for talking to me today. And um, the work that you're doing here is really inspiring. And thanks a lot for uh, telling our listeners about it.
7: Thank you for caring enough to come to Tijuana and see for yourself.
2: So one of the people who I met at the Commodore, uh, I met because, uh, you know, the same way that a a lot of punks meet each other, because they're wearing the shirt of a band they like. Uh, This was a guy who was wearing a Bad Brains shirt, and I immediately said, hey, nice shirt. And we talked about hardcore, and we went to some punk shows, and we became friends. ¿Quieres uh, decir tu nombre? uh, ¿Y qué haces aquí? ¿Y cómo llegaste?
8: Bueno, mi nombre es Jeffrey Zelaya Mendoza. Llegué a Tijuana con la caravana migrante. Eh, sí, permití, eh, permanecí en un grupo que se llamaba Mars. Alternative yeah, was part of a opposition an oppositional anarchist movement against the state, and the establishment, we started that movement in 2012, uh, 2012. Um, yeah. we were composed Nosotros of different people, eh, farmers, eh, um, there
4: were students, anarchists, metalheads, punks, eh, and you know, other people that were just normal, persona, we were persecuted at that point by the government of Honduras because we responded in a strong way in the streets against the dictatorial regime, which was the president, um, Perfirio Lobo Sosa. And it happened that once they became aware of us, they started to persecute, persecute us through the Partido Libre. Uh, and some people who actually self-identified themselves as socialists, but were really opportunists seeking power.
8: They benefited
4: from our struggles in the streets. And once they got into power, they started to hand over people who had been in the streets or in, in protest. Um, because in Honduras there were laws passed in Congress that to take the streets or to light a fire is an act of terror or terrorism. And... Many many people people have been been assassinated, some people have been politically persecuted, and other people are in asylum in other countries. So So it happens that a lot of our friends, um, some of them have been killed in the famous little mountain of Honduras. Others have been framed with drugs placed on them, and they they would say that they were part of organized crime. Some of us have been repressed and we've had to leave Honduras.
8: Bueno, sucedió de que cuando a mí me persiguieron los, los policías por parte. De, por parte de it happened that de I was persecuted by the police because I belonged to an anarchist group On 2014, July fifteenth. 2014, 2014,
4: they were looking for me everywhere in the streets where I studied and the places I hung out because they had tied me to a march where a police checkpoint had been lit on fire. This was a march I had not participated
8: in. Afterwards,
4: on August 9th, 2015, police that were heavily armed barged into my home and they took my father because they were looking for me. And they started torturing him and beating him and asking him where I was. And because that day they didn't find me, in order to intimidate me, they tortured my father and put drugs on him in order to put him in jail. The same day that they tortured my father, there was this consulate of human rights whose name is Jorge Jimenez, who was there. And so they took my father to forensics and there was evidence found that he had been treated in a degrading way. So that day my father was evaluated and after six days he was released from prison where he was because in his case he was innocent because he had been tortured and torture should not
8: exist. After that we filed a claim in the
4: Office of Human Rights so that there would be justice. We went to the court, me and my whole family, to file this claim and it resulted that the police themselves were involved in organized crime. So they kicked us out of the place where we live and we We were displaced from our home on july 9th 2016 i remember i abandoned honduras fleeing because they were looking for me to assassinate me for what had happened to me and my whole family but actually my family decided that only i should go because i was the main person that they were looking
8: for so i left honduras
4: on the day of my birthday And I arrived to the United States on the 30th of July in 2016. In El Paso, Texas, I was detained by Border Patrol. They had me one day in the icebox. That day, I did have the possibility of leaving, but my friend was unable to host me. So I spent one more day in detention, and I was informed that if I don't return to my country, my family could die or something like that. And that it would all be my fault. So Mm. I returned back to Honduras.
8: Then
4: I decided to go back to Honduras, not because I didn't get asylum, but because uh, there was this person who wasn't able to host me. But also I returned because my family was being threatened by the organized crime and the police. So that was really why I went back to Honduras. And when I returned, I, I, returned I returned on og- on October 3rd, 2016 to see what were the conditions at home. That day, people who were armed came into my home to intimidate me and they fired shots. They were saying that I should never come back because they knew I was denouncing the police. And so the next day... Like a mouse who uh, falls into a trap, uh, I went in and filed a claim to that same police station. So the police the passed on police. the information to other police that I had filed a claim against them, a and a they gave the location the of my family. And in February 15th, 2017, they found where we were living, and they kidnapped my 18, father. And they... they killed him in the place, place where we, we used to live as a form of warning. They also killed him because he was the only witness to the connection between organized crime and the police. Uh, we had a hearing coming up on August 2nd, 2018, so they did not want to leave a trace of being guilty. My family and my sister did present themselves at this hearing. After they found us again, after the the hearing, they found us again and threatened us. They told us that if we take part in any other court hearings, this time it would be me and my sister and my niece that would be dead. And that is what made us leave Honduras and take part in the migrant exodus in the caravan in which I find myself today in Tijuana. And my sister is in the United States with asylum, but under the vigilance of ICE with a bracelet on her foot. And And all the repression that we live in Honduras with uh, the fascists is due to organized crime, militarization, the police, and and the politics. The the migrant caravan is fleeing their countries because of these political practices. because truly De
8: what has
4: oppressed us is politics, the unemployment, racism, xenophobia, machismo, machismo, corruption, and all that stuff. All this this creates a defense where millions of young people people get involved in organized crime.
8: And I feel like like the politics being practiced today
4: are neoliberal politics, which is really being established all over the world, not just in Honduras we live through these difficulties. These politics are seen all over Latin America, and, and in Central America, Machismo. it's really the natural resources that has caught the attention so of the United an States and caused people to be
8: displaced. que quiero invitar a, a banda? I'd, I'd like to, to invite people to, to support my, my band.
4: So, um, yeah, well, Honduras my ex-band, because I left Honduras. Si but they are all fighting all to and create and a and punk scene because and there's not a lot and of and punk bands out there. Uh, the band is called distor- Distorter Head. Distorter-
8: um, we're not, you know, you a band
4: from, from the left, and left and or the right in a way, you could say it's apolitical, but we really are talking about the social problems that are lived in Honduras.
8: So I'm asking that if we're in the world of punk skins and anarchists that there be no divisions,
4: that we be more united because unity makes us stronger and...
8: We're weaker when we're divided. Also, it gives me pleasure to meet someone with similar personal interests. And yeah, it's been a pleasure to meet you, Andy. I give real
4: thanks from my heart to Enclave Corazon and all those people who've made an effort to help those who are in the streets, who don't have anything to eat, you know, because those things really come from the heart. And I ask the punks and the skins that if they really hear this message not to live with bitterness towards others, um, mm-hmm. The fact that there are people who are of a different color from us or live in North Bons, America, not all of them think the same.
8: Um, even
4: they themselves have have been obligated to learn Spanish to communicate with the se han
8: people. So let's not take it all as one side against personas. the other. Entonces no tomemos todo como de un lado para otro. Cada vez agradezcamos más porque las ayudas que vienen vienen del corazón, del ser humano y eso se tiene que ver de como de una gran forma Muchas gracias
2: On Honduras, uh, it it wasn't, it probably wasn't made totally clear in the interviews. In 2009, uh, there was a coup against uh, the President Zelaya, who's like a sort of populist leftist president. Um, He was removed from the country. The coup was uh, supported, if not, uh, you know, if not more than supported by Hillary Clinton. (laughs) Thanks,
0: Hillary Clinton. some idea of how uh, how right wing this was. Obama himself was calling it a coup at first, and then Hillary was like, "No, no, no, we can't call it a coup," and she legitimized it around the world.
2: So yeah, this Honduras essentially became like a neoliberal dictatorship, um, a client state of the United States. I mean, there's a long history of this happening in, Pinochet- in Central America. Central um, America, Gua- uh, and- Guatemala is probably the the most notable example of just continuing to be a banana republic for for decades what yeah, we... and that
0: led directly to a lot of the violence that we have seen in honduras since then like i saw the daughter of berta carceres who was an indigenous activist in honduras who was murdered by the same people who did the coup and she spoke at a socialist alternative event during the dnc and it was very moving to me and it also made me so angry at uh, anyone who could stand up and say you know hillary supports women right <sighs> right
2: so uh, in the years after 2009, I, I'm kind of shaky on the details of this. Um, you know, correct me if I'm wrong. To better, Andy. <laughs> but uh, Zelaya came back. But I think he sort of joined the neoliberal government in some way. But then there was another election in uh, 2017 with an, a new populist figure who uh, who won, uh, or it's, he seemed to have won. He was winning in in the polls during the uh, elections. And just like what happened to uh, Obrador uh, years ago in Mexico, the power suddenly went out. Oh yeah, um, it happens. Yeah. and when the power went back on, uh, the the uh, neoliberal regime
1: was winning in the polls. It happens. It happens all the time. And it's there was just days, of and weeks
2: of strikes and riots in 2017. Uh, Donald Trump supported uh, the the uh, falsely elected governments, and the repression after that was uh, increasingly brutal. Uh, and uh, you heard Jeff talking about the Mara, which is the the mafia. Uh, the mafia, the police, and the government working together, and just making it totally unbearable economically, politically. Um, so, so much so that people just got together on foot and marched out of the country.
1: Not to get all Jimmy Dore on this shit, uh, but it's what it was a tragic. Like those interviews were tragic, and they're also very maddening at the same time. You know, putting a human face on this shit and. You know, the Democrats, they 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 support these coups, even though, you know, they pretend to care about human rights and justice and they cause this problem. And then 10 years later, the results of that coup, the results of that problem, you know, are are made apparent by these people having to flee their their homes. And then you have a right wing, you have a, a Republican coming in and doing carceral and brutal and military solutions, calling it invasion and using racist language. It's it's the fucking it's two it's two sides of the same coin.
0: Yeah. Yeah, um, a few things, a few thoughts on these interviews. Um, I think a lot of the time, you know, obviously the right talks about migrants in a way that is very dehumanizing. They're just these like brown zombie-like invading hordes, you know, it's like this camp of saints shit. Um, But liberals can also slide into sort of a dehumanizing stereotype of them as just these endlessly suffering, these innocent, these one-dimensional victims of circumstance when a lot of these people have shown a lot of agency in fact and a lot of bravery in these situations um despite you know very intimidating circumstances and they have a politics and not all of them have a liberal politics you know the guy that we just talked to that andy talked to he was an anarchist um he doesn't believe in borders if he's an anarchist and like they they also like to um To say things like, like liberals, they're trying to help, but they're, they're trying to, they say things like, oh, well, nobody's calling for open borders. Like that's a straw man of the right. But like, actually, yes, yes, we are. There are communists (laughs) and anarchists on both sides of the border who, both sides of the border who do not believe in borders. So Uh, it's a little more complicated than that. If
1: if you want some uh, verification of that, check out my uh, interview on Tucker Carlson show. I went on there (laughs) to order for, uh, to advocate open borders. It went well. It went really well.
2: Yeah, I, I don't advocate for open borders. I think that the horizon is no borders. Yes. Yes, open borders, as, that
0: is the incrementalist position.
2: Yeah, uh, as no, nice. I think as long as we have borders, as long as there are states with borders, that the there should be a legal and safe way for people to enter the country. Yes. So a thousand people should arrive at the border and there should be enough, there's more than enough uh Border Patrol assholes to fill out asylum requests for all of them in a short period of time so that they don't have to go walk through the desert led by a human trafficker in order to ask for asylum in the desert and risk their lives. And hundreds of people die every year doing this. That is the so-called open border policy uh, where you have to walk through mountains and deserts for days
1: and we talked about agency before too you know these people the one guy was organizing in his town and had his father was he tortured or killed killed Killed. he he
2: was tortured and then killed
1: tortured and then killed we talk about agency and that these these people understand that this is a political issue and at the same time uh in tijuana and elsewhere they're self-organizing you know not that every mexican citizen you know, accepts them because we heard that rock throwing story, right? But there are people on the ground, people with politics like us, or maybe people who just do this out of like goodwill and understanding the humanity of these people who are creating things like the uh, the Commodore, right? Is that what it's called? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. The Commodore. And um, who are like working with these people because they are fighting on the ground, not just for dignity, but to stay alive, to be fed, you know, to, to be housed as they're waiting for this process to go through, which, as Andy said, should be way fucking easier than yeah. it is right yeah.
0: now yeah and you said the the anarchist had his application for asylum denied Is that correct
2: so the story as I understand it uh, he, he told me a little bit more about it uh, out of, outside the interview but he so w- after his father was tortured he left the country um, and made it to El Paso uh, in 2016, I think uh, or 17 and he asked for he asked for asylum for some bureaucratic reasons I didn't totally understand he did not get asylum he was sent back to his country, uh, where there was still this ongoing human rights trial uh, against the officers that tortured his father. Uh, before he could testify, his father was murdered by the police, and so the trial couldn't happen. And there was a story about how he was like a you know a local drunk or something, and they they, they made up a fake story justifying. How it just so happened that this person who the, the sole witness testifying against the police would be killed so now Jeff is is trying to uh, ask for asylum again, uh, but it's a very difficult case because he was already denied, but he he is working on it uh, in the meantime he's working in a um, uh along the border uh, and making far less money than uh, his Mexican coworkers. Um, and Makiadora jobs already pay less than the normal Mexican job, so he's he's just making a very very low amount of money and just trying to survive in Tijuana, which I don't think I've mentioned. Uh, really sucks. Tijuana is not. <laughs> yeah. We we all love Mexico. We Tijuana all love, we is all not love, uh, one of the good. We all
1: love dentistry. Yeah, getting free, uh, cheap dentis, dentistry and buying Xanax uh, at pharmacies. But yeah, I I gotta say, like these inhuman monstrous fucking ghouls, like Laura Ingram. She said last week, oh. These people should just—they should be in the safety of their own homes in their own country and apply for asylum there. There is no safety, you fucking idiot. Like these what people have of asylum. To leave. Do you not yeah, understand? It's it's U.S. law and it's international law. These people have the right to do this. And these fucking monsters, these fucking horrific hell beasts, Like fuck, Laura Ingram, She is saying, "Oh yeah, just stay there. It'll be fine. You know, if the police kill your father, then you know, just just fill out the application and just wait. You know." Well,
0: it goes back to that camp of the saints shit because uh, under. It-
1: we're on that camp of the same shit (laughs)
0: because under under that rubric like they're just these brown invading hordes who will say whatever they need to say in order to get in and like wreck the west or whatever as if people most people would prefer to stay in their homes right like people have the right to move wherever they want to but generally speaking like people want to stay in their homes and in their communities and they only leave them when there are some extreme circumstances at play
2: and, and the the economic situation in Honduras uh, even if you're not being politically persecuted persecuted is an extreme situation uh, we heard uh, Jose say uh, about how um he he can't let his son go to high school because if he goes to high school he's going to be entrapped into a gang and forced <laughs> to sell drugs right and he doesn't want that future for his son um and you can't like a lot a lot of people i talked to were very open like I can't make a living in Honduras. I had to leave, and we think the the political, We know the political situation in the United States is really bad. We know it's going to be very dangerous and hard for us to get there, but I would rather live the life of an immigrant in the United States and make more money than live in Honduras and make nothing and have to deal with the, the gang and police violence on a daily basis. Yeah, and the fact yeah. that
0: they're treating people this badly at the border and they're still coming just proves, like... Yeah. There's unless the U.S. turns into El Salvador. There's pretty much nothing they can do to make this a, a an option that is not safer than where they're coming
1: from. And just to like put another marker down, on both sides, whether the liberals talking about like um, their, the economic benefit of the migrants or like having a humane policy on the border that's like a path to citizenship so that these people can be exploited for several years and go through this process and then uh, eventually become citizens, like fine, all well and good. Or the right, you know, who to de- like dehumanize isn't even the word. Like they fucking turn these people into these invading hordes, not only just erasing their voices and their experience, but making them the enemy. And what you really got, what we got from these interviews, is uh, something really important, I think, which is the humanization of the people going through this crisis, right? Trump declares a, an emergency, and again, the emergency is with these people trying to leave their homes so they don't get killed. And we need we need to hear these voices. You don't get that from anywhere.
0: Yeah. I was also thinking, um, listening to uh, Jeff talk about his experiences, um, you know, we do have a relative amount of political freedom in the U.S., and... The, I don't want to pretend that we don't. Uh, the cops certainly are not torturing and killing activists on the level that they do in Honduras not or El Salvador. Yeah. But like, the cops here are also fairly problematic in their treatment of leftists, <laughs> problematic and activists, non-faves. right? <laughs> like, I, that word almost feels like way too small to describe what goes on. I mean, our good friend. Jerry Koch was imprisoned for the better part of a year.
2: Chelsea Manning is currently in prison for the exact same reason. Yep.
0: And like you know, who could forget when the cops raided uh, Sean's house uh, the day before Mayday? And yeah, that was a that was a real a coincidence. To jail, that was a real coincidence. Under uh, for like old open container tickets. Yep. So uh, considering how the cops treat uh, homegrown leftists in the U.S., it, it stands to reason that they would not be treating leftists from other countries very well.
1: Yeah. Uh, not to go back into my uh, my tale of uh, waking up in the morning uh, at five a.m. Uh, with a NYPD detective and a flashlight in my face, telling me to get the fuck out of bed, and then proceeding to handcuff me and throw me in a paddy wagon for an open container summons that I had from a few years back, right? Like
2: straight edge revenge.
1: <laughs> that is that. That's uh, unfortunately, I, I think that like everybody needs to be aware that the united states is in honduras but we have the structures in place where once we start to gain power on the streets and elsewhere like they will use these yeah. tactics i mean
0: to say nothing of the number of black activists right. who were spied on and in some cases murdered by the cia
1: fred, fred hampton the yeah, FBI, I mean, yeah. that's
2: that i the FBI. mean yeah they're not murdering activists here uh i can't think of the last one we could really say was murdered.
0: I mean, we have seen uh, Black Lives Matter activists turning up dead right, under right. suspicious circumstances. That's, that's true. That, that woman got and, her arm
1: blown off at Standing Rock, right? So
0: and like we know, we have confirmation that they did this in the past right. to like the Black Panthers. My point
2: is that they they have and they will do this when we start posing enough of a threat. Yes, exactly. So like it, that's why part of um, why I thought it was so important. What part of what I took away from Tijuana? Uh, And talking to Jeff and other—I mean, all—all these people were political in one way or another, whether or not they had an ideology. Is that uh, you know, once you do become enough of a threat, if you if you are protesting a fraudulent election uh, and it becomes enough of a threat to the state, they they will start killing and torturing people. It will happen here. It has happened here in the past.
0: Yeah. If Trump ever gets his shit together to be a proper authoritarian, <laughs> I will certainly feel much safer in Amlos, Mexico, despite all of the left critiques that I have of him as well.
1: Well, Andy uh, scouted out that antifada compound that we're going to uh, build down there in Mexico, you know, displace a bunch of people and uh, live the dream. We'll, we'll be potted from Mexico soon. It'll be awesome.
0: Hell yeah. I'm just oh, kidding. Well, <laughs> speaking of... It's a joke. Of... <laughs> it's Aww, a joke. We're not going...
1: No, we're going, but we're not going to displace anybody.
0: <laughs> oh, cert- I mean, certainly not. Well, speaking of displaced people, um, do you have any updates on the caravan of internally displaced uh, indigenous people that we saw the last time that Sean and I were in Mexico?
2: Well, no, no not specifically, but I did talk to a number of uh, leftists and anarchists in Mexico, uh, asking them what they thought about the, the new leftist president, uh, Manuel Obrador, um, Manuel Lopez Obrador. And he was Amlo, yeah. right? Hey, let's not, Mr. let's Umlo, not be a hero. <laughs> um, I asked them what they thought about Senor Omlo, and no one had anything good to say about him. I I didn't just talk to like the most insurrectionary hardened anarchists. I talked to leftists, unionists. Uh, i met a, a Trotskyist guy. Uh, no, no one had anything positive to say. They said he's only marginally better than uh, the priest does. Uh, he can't... To the extent that he is better, he can't really do much uh, he, despite the overwhelming majority that he won. They are especially upset about the way he handled the Mechia strike that was oh, going yeah. on in December and uh, January. Was yeah, it 48 he was getting factories a lot of for that More the, than 48. Like, 48, well, 48 yes, won. So There's about—I uh, I haven't gotten an update on it, but 48 factories won in what ended up being a wildcat strike yeah. um, against the wishes of the union. Uh, it's, it's sort of complicated, but basically there was supposed to be a pay increase— and the the management uh, sort of folded the pay increase into an annual bonus, and so they went on strike demanding both, and the union tried to stop them from doing that. AMLO's people tried to stop them from doing that, and they did it anyway, and they won. but they're also upset about how Amlo is handling uh, relationships with indigenous people in the south of the country. He's trying to build this uh, train Maya, or like a, a tourist train that goes throughout yeah. the Yucatan and Chiapas. That's going to displace a lot of indigenous communities. Going to destroy a lot of the environments. Um, and uh, certainly the Zapatistas, who we talked about before, have. No sympathy whatsoever with AMLO. No interest in working with them. In fact, they recently announced they're going to take up arms again <laughs> oh, to yeah. defend themselves. Yeah, I read right. an
0: update, actually, from the Zapatista women, specifically. I think it was posted on Valentine's Day. And they talked about the, quote-unquote, train Maya. And how uh, offensive it is that they're calling it that. And that they promised to fight to the nail, if they have to, to oppose this sort of uh, capitalist... Incursion. I mean, you could call it a kind of internal imperialism, right? Into yeah, sure. these communities, these autonomous communities that they have fought to keep safe for years and years.
1: Yeah, we we talked on that episode about how uh, Chiapas is almost like an internal colony, you know, within Mexico. I think the important thing to to point out about Amlo and this also holds for, say, uh, Bernie Sanders and also holds for Jeremy Corbyn, is that left populism is better than right populism or the the vital center. However, in, unless AMLO is able to like make structural changes based on the self-organization and the power of the Mexican working class and allow that process to unfold— it's, it's not socialism, folks. It, it's no. not that at all. Like, I mean, top-down bureaucratic, technocratic uh, measures, it, that's I mean, not that.
0: And we were talking to our friend Ishauri about it when we were in Mexico City. Like, he is a nationalist. AMLO is, at base, a nationalist. Like, a lot of these left populist figures are. Bernie Sanders, to some degree. Jeremy Corbyn. Yeah, and like, maybe, yeah, in the short term, that's better than, like, a Trump. But long-term, you have to have an internationalist vision um, you can't have socialism in one country. I don't think you can even have social democracy in one country and have it be like anything real and sustainable. like we need a real progressive international. And I don't know. Bernie said some good things on that, and he said some bad things, right.
2: I mean my my issue with this this new wave of you know progressive international social democracy is uh they're they're claiming socialism, they're popularizing socialism again, but they're kind of. Positioning it in a way where it's no longer about class; it's about oh, yeah. the elite and the millionaires and billionaires. <laughs> right. And I think that you know, again, it is better than right populism, but it papers over the the molecular building blocks of capitalist society. Yeah.
1: And Just the ninety-nine percent, like. like- that's like a it's like a disaggregated mass of people like uh, we understand rhetorically why you would say the 99 percent versus the 1 percent. But within that 99 percent, there's a lot of like class variation. Right. And,
0: and we can hate the players and the game. Right. Like I think sometimes uh, people want to sort of scapegoat the 1 percent, the millionaires and the billionaires and say that this is all their fault. And, you know, they may be shitty people like I'm not going to defend them. But Elon
1: Musk did nothing wrong. Like
0: even the capitalist class ultimately does not have that much control over the machinations of, you know, the system itself. And a lot of this stuff is very overdetermined by what this insane thing called the market is doing.
1: You you hit like uh you did you took my left populism thing and you took it to its logical conclusion, which is you're right. It's not like Right populism is you create an elite, and for them it's like the cultural Marxist, like liberal media elite, whatever, George Soros. But left populism simply says, like, we are the 99%, they are the 1%. It's a very shallow analysis. Again, it's better, but, like, if you don't – if it doesn't have a class-based structural critique – of the system and actually a program to move that forward, then you're, you're going to fall into the same trap. Yeah,
0: it, it deflects blame from the system itself. Right, you know? exactly. Yeah. It's like, it's Bezos like saying, is bad. Elon Musk know, is the bad. The system is broken, uh, which implies that this system can somehow be fixed. <laughs> right.
1: 100%. And
2: obviously it lets the petty bourgeois and other class allies of the
1: bourgeoisie off the hook because they're... They're the working class too. Small business, small owners. business owners. We, love, we yeah, love them. Small business owners. Every time I hear small business over uh, owners, I reach yeah. for my gun.
0: Well, maybe they'll <laughs> side with the working class this time. <laughs>
1: Figuratively. You of never course. know. Parody there have folks. been
0: situations where the uh, petty bourgeoisie uh, sided with the. Uh, well,
1: n- not to get too deep into it, but the whole idea of the petty bourgeoisie is that they're a kind of liminal class, you know, in between the proletariat and the, real, and the haute bourgeoisie. So they could go one way or the other. Like in the New Deal period, you saw you know, the the petty bourgeois, like, lining up with the New Deal programs. Uh, Ultimately, the working class is the majority, not just in the U.S. or Honduras, but in every single country. And the interviews and the solidarity work that Andy does, I think, shows us the path path forward. Because, again, we cannot just simply legislate our way out of this issue. We cannot simply let some technocratic, bureaucratic politician uh, pass regulations and laws that are going to make this shit better. We need to be... Solidarity. We need to be together as one fighting against an unjust system and we need to fight it sy- systematically, right?
0: Hell yeah.
2: And the caravans are a uh, model of direct action and solidarity. Yes. Uh, they're all stronger together. That's how they were able to leave Honduras okay. and then leave Guatemala and then make it together to Tijuana. And that's why the Mexican state under AMLO is pursuing a policy of dispersing them. Breaking up their camps, breaking up their squats, uh, harassing them, trying to bust them around the country, Uh, working with Trump to have a uh, remain in Mexico policy, so that once they have their asylum cases processed, they stay in Mexico and wait. And when they stay in Mexico, they are, uh, especially in these border cities, they're incredibly dangerous. They are targets for cartels, for drug dealers, uh, for all kinds of just horrible. Because they're, you know, they have very little legal civil rights. Um, so this is a really brutal policy that El El is, is fortunately fighting. And I just want to give a quick update. Um, the caravans, by the way, are still coming. Uh, there's uh, still hundreds of people arriving every week in Tijuana. This is an update from some, uh, another activist who's helping out the Commodore. Uh, they say uh, 300 to 500 people with the next caravan have begun to arrive in Tijuana. The Contra El Biento y Morea Kitchen, named after the warehouse that was held during a six-day siege by cops, uh, serves caravanners and anyone who needs a hot meal twice a day. As of the past few days, the kitchen is feeding 100 to 200 people twice a day. Uh, when I was there, they were serving about uh, uh, 40 people twice a day. Um, prepare And they're preparing for as many as 400 hot meals a day. So they're asking for more money to help pay their rents. Uh, and to to help buy food, this is a, a way you can, like, definitely directly help uh, migrants um, uh, stick together and uh, be healthy and safe. And, uh, you know, when they stick together, they're, they're safer from the police and the cartels. So you can help them at GoFundMe.com slash Tijuana dash kitchen.
1: If you take anything away from this episode, understand that not only are these migrants and these caravans human beings not only are, do they have agency and are political actors and are using direct action, but ultimately at the end of the day, they're our brothers and sisters. The more you hear about their experience and their lives, the more you realize that while they may, may be much worse off than us, that we are all in this fight together, we're all in this struggle together, and the best thing that you could possibly do is... Raise that fist and uh, and stand with our uh, brothers and sisters in Central America, Africa, and elsewhere, because that just means everything for uh, not just our movement, but uh, for the people, yeah. for the people out there. Oh, and yeah. if you
2: if you want to go to Tijuana, um, you can check out Enclave Caracol on Facebook, or you can get in touch with us. Email antifada underscore mindset at gmail dot com. There's
1: no underscore antifada uh, mindset at gmail.com.
2: Yeah, antifada mindset gmail dot com, and I, I'll talk to you personally about what you can do there. Yeah.
0: It might sound like a cliche. Uh, people might say it a lot, but I think it's really important. El pueblo unido, será unido, and also shout out to Andy's uh, Spanish speaking skills. Yeah. Um, similar to me he actually speaks pretty good Spanish but with a horrible gringo <laughs> accent so I hope you all enjoy that like a lot. the word
1: queer we're gonna reappropriate gringo <laughs> I, I got by
0: oh my god that remember babe when we were at the spa yeah. and you were you were waiting for like me Nero, and boy Jamie to go meet up with you and yeah. you asked the guy there like if he if, if he, were, if uh, he were there I yet. was like
1: in Spanish I was like have you have you seen my friends and he, he said it back in Spanish to me he's like yeah I saw like two Two or three gringos downstairs they, they, that might be your friends and then he felt really embarrassed <laughs> like he's like oh I said gringo in front of him like no problem like yo soy un gringo <laughs> no fine. problem it's a little pejorative <laughs> it's, fine. it's fine we deserve it no
0: it's fine mean, yes exactly <laughs> I will never get mad at someone for calling me a gringo Gringo. Gringa, whatever. I'm
1: sorry, it's green, green gex.
0: Oh, my bad. <laughs> Don't gender it. That's I am ahead. a proud <laughs> green Gex American, <laughs> and this is my lot in life. I embrace it.
9: It goes, 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 Hit it all, between and beneath, every fragmented figure of speech, tongue in reverse, whenever the beat causes my jaws to call. Ah, 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 ah. Yeah. The swing flash red, can't see shit an accident Spinning like planets out of orbit off the edge. Of monacles ripping the doors to and all that's ever been said. Yeah. Yeah. the cord, kick the chair, and you're yeah. 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 It goes, 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 it, goes, it goes. <laughs> Head of a trick in a bucket, body of a trick in a bag, and thrown in the fire like fuck it. Gotta burn it before it goes bad. Too many times but disgusted by the stents of riding such a drag. <laughs> Get broke by the street like blood stained glass. <laughs> Choke on these nuts to the very last. <laughs> it goes, it goes, it goes, it goes. Serial number, killing machine. They're you will never build on the filthy sound you're experiencing. It goes, 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 it goes. Tinted windows full proof, the slip knot fixing rope to noose to the great grinder of cold steel. The passion that blinds me so I feel, yeah. yeah. They go to a flow to our veins, blows to our tunnels, and rattles our chains. And they all fall down. Yeah, yeah.